0: Welcome to Mental Health Hour, the podcast. I'm Kat. I'm Kayla. And it's episode 11. Just like that. We have a very special guest with us today. Someone I'm so excited. I've actually been waiting and I've been really excited about this. We have Neil Fitzpatrick with us. I was going to attempt an introduction and a bio, but then we were like, no, we want to do it justice
1: and let you do it yourself, Neo. So would you like to introduce yourself in just a couple of lines? So any mistakes therein are my own, really. That's what this is about. Basically. Okay, so yeah, so Niamh Fitzpatrick and I'm a psychologist. I work in two main areas. I've come up through psychology, clinical psychology, sports psychology. So two main areas, one being the mental health space. So all around anxiety, grief, depression, stress, even confidence, all of those kind of things. I work in that space would have a lot of referrals from GPs, physios, pharmacies, that kind of thing. And then I also work in the performance psychology space. So that's very much around, you know, how does somebody prepare themselves to deliver on whatever stage their performance is? So it could be a sporting stage, it could be a dancing stage, musical stage, it could be driving tests, public speaking whatever. How does somebody handle nerves, excess nerves? How do they build their confidence? How they bounce back from an error or a poor performance or anything like that? How do they believe that they actually have the capabilities to do whatever they're doing? So those two areas would be the main areas of my work. And I have done lots of Cool things. I've been really privileged in this is my thirty first year as a psychologist, and really privileged in that. So, I was the HQ psych with the Irish Olympic team for three Olympic Games in Athens, Beijing, and London. Um, I was the agony aunt on Today FM for many years. I worked with the Ray Dorsey show, Anton Savage show, Neil Delamere show. Incredible to be able to get psychology out to wider sort of numbers. And um, in the last couple of years, I've become an author. So I wrote a book called Tell Me the Truth About Loss. And that was published during the pandemic there in September 2020. So I I feel like I was in UCD starting off the beginning of my arts degree just like that. And then here I am 31 years later with all that cool stuff under my belt. Um, It's quite a privilege. And if I win the lottery, I will still be doing this. It's what I was meant to, to do. That's how I feel about this role. Isn't
0: that's just incredible. You can really
2: hear it where, even when you're talking about it. I'm looking at we're mm. recording this over Zoom virtually and, and I'm looking at Neve's face and you, you get really animated, mm. and you just smile through the whole the whole bio. So that that was lovely. And I'm super excited for today, even just listening to you introduce yourself. It's like, OK, where do I want to start with this lady? Where what's my first question? Um so thank you for being with us number one uh, we really do appreciate it
1: you're welcome and thank for asking me i think it's really lovely to have these places and f- platforms to be able to talk things through around the work i love you know listening to what other people do and how they do it and what they think about things it's i just think podcasts it's, it's really cool it's it's a great thing to have so thank you for inviting me
0: not at all jeepers not at all geez there's so much there even in the start stuff you mentioned I was like "Ooh, I used to be an international athlete and um when you said there about like I think people I suppose have this sense that if you're at an international level in sport you must be kind of invincible and you don't need that psychological support you know you're perfect mental health all the time whereas kind of what you're saying is obviously not no there's there's a there's a team behind these people that's that's helping them along and I think that's an important message as well
1: and I I think what that is is there are maybe the two strands. So it happens that the work I do is in the mental health space and the performance mm-hmm. psychology space. But often, if somebody comes to me for a performance matter, we end up doing both. So it's not um it's not unusual to work around the mental health piece with an elite athlete. And it, but it's understanding from a sports psych, from performance psychology point of view, that. That idea that, well, that you just said there, Katrina, you know, people might think of somebody's elite athletes, sure, they're grand, sure, they're fine. What would they need be, any, be needing any of that psych stuff? What that's forgetting, although a common sort of thought, what that's forgetting is that if you have a talent in your sport, you have a particular scale, a particular talent, the ingredients of delivering that talent, on the day of competition, you need to have your fitness, right? You need to have your technical elements, right? all the organization, right? Your lifestyle, right? But the psychological element is, can I do this under pressure? Mm. Can I do this when there's a clock or an opponent or an audience or a, and this is obviously audio, so your listeners are not going to see this, but I'm doing air quotes with my fingers <laughs> which is a consequence So if it's, if it's, you know, we will get into the final if I make this point. Mm. So really what happens often in sport is people train the skill based pieces. So they train the technical elements. They will train the fitness pieces, but often what's left to chance is the bit around that bit that I've just spoken about the psychological side. Can I do this on the day when it matters when I don't have another 10 goes at it? That's it. And really, it's understanding that bit is often where the sports psych comes in. And if we can help people understand your sports like is just the same as your coach or your fitness advisor, just for your head and your heart.
0: Yeah. And you know what? As you were talking there, we ran, totally side note, uh, but also relevant, we ran the Cube as a fundraiser there a couple of years ago. We could have done with you for, because when people got into the Cube, and I mean, these were J players, county players. They were dropping everything because people were watching. Them. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you know. yeah, well, even if you think of what we're doing now, so we are each recording this. We have microphones, you know, we're on video. If you think for a lot of people, if we put them into a radio studio or a television studio and you put that camera onto them or the microphone in front of them, a lot of people understandably just Mm. dry up and freeze because it's exactly that it's people are watching or people are listening. And so it's really understanding what are the skills around that? How do I do the thing that I train for every day or every three days a week or four days a week or whatever your sport is? How do I do that when people are watching and all of those things? It's a really exciting field. It's a, it's an interesting field. My approach to it is to anybody in any sport, you are a person, before you're a player. So mm. if you come to me for your sports psych work, I'm going to deal with you as a whole person. I'm not just going to look at you in that sporting arena. Mm. And it works. I, I, I love it. I don't just like it. I love it. You can see
0: that. I can really see that. How did you get to any of the psychologists? Like what was the route you took to get there? Or was it always, was that
1: always your passion? Nope. I wanted to do law.
0: Okay. Law?
1: That's very different. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Came from a family where law was in the family, really on both sides, actually. Um, Interestingly, my mother and father met because my maternal grandfather was giving grinds in law. And he was an incredible man, Owen Mul- Holland, an incredible man. He actually used to get Miholo Murahartik. He used to go Owen used to go to Croke Park, take videos of the Dublin team and other teams playing. He used to get Miholo Murahartik, to, to put commentary <laughs> on the, uh, videos before he was who he who he was. Yeah. And then um the team, the Dublin team would come round to my grandfather's house uh, with their manager and look through the videos and do all of this. And yet we find all these years later, I'm working in part of my work is the sports psych space and quite incredible because he had this, you know, this kind of role in here that was just a side of amazing, but he was a solicitor by profession and that's how my parents met because, uh, my, he gave my father grinds and he met my mother in the process. Oh, stop. So, Yeah. And so law was in both sides, wanted to do law. I I liked school. I loved school. I went to Mucras in Dublin, really loved it. There were sort of four streams of classes and I would have been with my twin sister in the third stream and we were hard workers and, you know, I sort of worked hard, but I wouldn't have been the most academic in the world by any means. Missed the points for law. (gasps) Yeah, (laughs) missed the points for law and um, failed maths. In the, in the process, I'm proof that you don't need maths to get into UCD because I did a matric at the time and, and got into UCD that way, decided I was going to go in to do an arts degree. And if you like, go in through the roundabout path to law, do arts mm. and then fly through that and trot into Black Old Place. So what yeah. happened was I picked English as one of my subjects because I love reading and books. I smell books. I Oh, I love the feel. I just love them. I picked philosophy because they told me that it was an easy third subject. And the middle subject I picked was psychology because I just love people. And there was a lecturer in UCD at the time called Aidan Moran, and he was incredible. He was to this day, 1986. I went in there, September 86, and I remember his lectures from way back. I remember being in the lecture theater. He was that incredible. And he just inspired me and the whole thing inspired me. And I never looked at law again. Never even thought. Wow, about it. that's Especially unbelievable. One years after, based on a failure, really, is what we're saying. Yeah, the the route. Sometimes, like I went the kind of roundabout
0: route as well. And you know what? You end up kind of finding yourself along the way. I think you do. You absolutely do.
2: I'm your sister, Neve. I failed maths as well. Went the roundabout way. Took me long enough to get there. But here we go. You yeah. know. So it's it's points don't matter. The leave insert. Yeah. Sick of saying it does not matter. No. Um, just stick to your guns and, and just try and figure out who you are mm-hmm. and what you want to do. And eventually you can there's there's loads of different options. So
1: Neva's definitely think, living proof for that. Yeah, well, and we both are. We all are. I think what happens there is if you think about it, we're asked to make a decision on what appears to be our whole life. But of course, now, as we get older, you know, we understand whatever you do to start off in your life. It doesn't have to end up being what you're doing your whole life. We know that later, yeah. but certainly at the time when you're in fifth or sixth year in school, it feels huge. And I know that from mm. talking, and working with people, mm. it feels huge. So there's a great pressure there to pick what I'm going to do, but really we're asked to do that at a time when we don't know enough. And I often feel if we if there was some sort of system, this is buying in the sky idea. I'm just shooting the breeze here. You yeah. could leave school <laughs> and you could have, you know, three years, two, three years to just figure
0: yourself out.
1: Yeah. Travel. Do mm-hmm. be, try things, see people, understand the world, get a bit of life experience, and then come back and say, now I quite fancy checking a bit more of this out, yeah, we that out. Wouldn't that be a much better place to then to then we start picking our college courses or our apprenticeships or whatever it is that we want to do?
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 tasting all the meals before you choose your dinner, isn't it really? Like that's that's lovely kind of a approach you like know? that.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. I love what you say because this is a theme. And just as we were chatting before we started recording, you were saying that there's so many things that you know now that you wish you even knew two years ago or three years ago or one year ago. And I think that's, I suppose, a nice way of leading us into what we want to talk about today with you, which is loss and grief. You mentioned that you wrote a book, a fantastic book, by the way, uh, Tell Me the Truth About Loss. Um, So do you want to talk a little bit about the book, Katrina? I know you absolutely love this book. Um, I suppose
0: there's a few reasons I love it. And I suppose the main one is it was just so real. It was unfiltered which is what I loved about it. You know, there's there's numerous elements that I've made notes and I want to chat to you about as we go along, but people associate grief and loss with bereavement, which you have had with your sister Dara. But alongside that, you also had other losses and, and grief experiences, you know, which you mentioned, like failed IVF, marriage breakdown. There's several. And I think the way you spoke about them all in tandem and they were all different, but each had a massive impact, didn't it, Niamh? like. You know, is it fair to say, did I capture
1: that right? Hugely. Uh, So the context for the book was around the. The things that lived experience of grief have surprised me with, I suppose, been different with than what I imagined grief and loss to be as a professional. They were just so they were, they have just when I say were, they are you know, they are so different. And what I noticed in the beginning as I began to feel even those early days and weeks to feel those feelings of loss for Dara, I it, I got this sense that really some of these feelings were familiar to me. I had seen them, known them, felt them before in my life, but I had never I had somebody so close to me die. I mean, you know, Dara was 45 when she died. I was 48. We're sisters for 45 years. We're friends the whole way through all of our family, our siblings. We we'd be, would be very close and we'd be pals. I know her face the way I know her my face. I know her voice the way I know my voice. And it feels like a part of me. I've never lost a child. Um, I'm not a mother, but I it's what feels to me the nearest that I will probably ever know is that loss of a sibling, the, the best gift my parents ever gave us was each other. And so i would never known loss like this, mm-hmm. but I found myself knowing some of the feelings and I began really to recognize that in the years, few years prior, probably by the time I was about 42. We had finished, I was married at the time, we had finished doing IVF. We then came, we'd finished an adoption journey, really none of those successful. And I realized in grieving Dara, that what I had done there was I had grieved, but I never recognized it. I mean, I'm a psychologist, I never recognized it. Because what I began to realize was, well, nobody had died. It wasn't, it was infertility, inability to conceive. And so nobody had died. But what I began to realize is, but hope had died. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And Mm -hmm. there was the grief around that. So I suppose part of it became became around. Well, if I can feel this, are there other people who feel this? Are there other people who have losses in their life that they never saw as lost? They never saw that they had a right to grieve, Mm -hmm. that they never spoke about, that they maybe never understood? And was there something in this and at the time uh, that dara died i had been the agony aunt uh, with today fm i'd mentioned it there earlier and i was with neil Delamere's show and i had seven weeks off after dara died and i just it took me that long just to just to settle a bit and to be able to focus on somebody else before i went back to work and when i went back to the agony Ant slot we couldn't just go straight back in you know, and pick up where we left off or left off. Listeners knew I was Dara's sister. So we decided that Neil would really talk to me through what were the last seven weeks like for you. You've spent 11 years or whatever on Today FM helping others with their emotions. What was it like for you? And maybe that started off. I think that mm. started off that conversation around grief. And then the book has continued it really. But it was important for me to mark that the lived experience and the professional experience were different. And maybe for me also, and not for everybody, but it was important. It felt that if I am helping others with their emotional world, but I am living what in Dara's death was a public bereavement. Mm. It didn't feel right for me to never speak about that. It didn't feel Mm. authentic. So those were probably the reasons in the context around the book.
0: There's so much in it, like, and I think the, I suppose the other thing that comes through as you're reading it is how, just literally overnight everything just changed. For those that don't know, Dara Fitzpatrick um was one of the crew with the pilot in in Rescue One One Six, and for you, you speak about replaying all the the last conversations and stuff like that, and you know you you really put it really beautifully. You even say that in the past, you've noticed a heightened sense of awareness around conversations if you knew someone was passing away. And I know with some people in my life that I know, look, they could go at any moment because they're, you know, they have an illness. It's something that really struck me because it's like you get this weird sensation every time you're having a conversation, like you need to remember every piece of it. You know, like you said, it's a heightened awareness. And I just thought it was it was amazing to hear you speak about it because it was something that
1: was going through my mind, but I hadn't really heard anyone else talking about it. Yeah, I think there's lots of elements of <clears throat> loss and grief and bereavement and different types of losses that we don't talk about. And there's it's you know, there's there's loads of reasons for that. It might be something we stumble on later, but there certainly are loads of reasons for that. But the bit about the conversation piece, you know, for me I went to bed on Monday the thirteenth of March, twenty seventeen, and I had four siblings and I woke and and one of those siblings was missing and, and life We hear from a lot of people, you know, thinking that life has changed in March 2020 with the pandemic and life changed again now in this February, March with the war in Ukraine for for us personally, for our family. Life had already changed beyond recognition and it was March 2017. And so those conversations, what happens with that is your life becomes divided into a before and after. It's a slice, a big, sharp knife that slices through your life and cuts it in two. And so those conversations, especially those last conversations, become so big and so poignant because... When I think of in my situation, we've had 45 years together. The days around the table in the morning when your kids having your breakfast, the fighting in the car and the way to school. Mom, she's sitting too close to me and all that <laughs> stuff. The You know, the moaning over doing your homework when, you're, when you come home from school, the, the messing around that you doing when you're teenagers and you're sneaking out to discos and stuff. And the adulting, the young adulting things, you know, we both have careers where I suppose in different parts of our careers, we, with Dara and I, we've been in a quite male dominated environment. I often work with football teams or hurling teams, and we both know that space of being often the only female or one of only a couple of females in the male world. So we shared a lot there, those early days relationships, like you share this whole life. and never is a long time so when you never you know you're never going to see that person again that's why those conversations a goodbye if you get one and that let's be really clear goodbyes it's not that it's easier if you have a goodbye and it's harder if you haven't Mm. like us had a goodbye you're robbed if you don't have a goodbye but you're robbed with your loved one gone anyway yeah the idea of that conversation of a goodbye with someone you love It's utterly heartbreaking. So there's heartbreak either way, it doesn't matter. But whether you have had that time with them and that goodbye with them, or whether you've had nothing, when that person has gone, those last conversations are absolutely heightened, because I think what we're doing in it is we're searching to try and see, did they know? Hmm. Did they know in their last moments of their life? Did they know for sure that we love them and you seek hmm. for evidence of that? And often the place we will go to is in those last conversations. Yeah,
0: totally understandable.
2: Everything you said, I'm just kind of sitting here in silence because I'm like, yep, yep yeah and and you have touched on so many things there, and the one thing that stands out for me is the ambiguity of it all of the situation that you and your family went through because obviously Captain Dara Fitzpatrick and her crew were missing, like you touched on in the initial stages, and that that piece is just so uh,
1: like how do you how do you be in that and and how do you feel in that moment? I think what happens there. And I would say to anybody in in any of these really difficult, really toughest of situations in life is what actually happens is you just survive you in the beginning. You were just surviving that that's all you're doing. So so I remember I remember incredible details. I remember lying in my bed. I remember waking up before my alarm clock, which was due to go off. And I remember my phone rang and it was my sister, Emer, who lives with Dara and Dara's little son four houses away from me. We live in the same state and Ema rang and she just said those words that were going to change our lives forever and was the hell is down come over. And from that moment, I think, you know, you mobilize. You have to I had to ring my mother. Our father was in the UK um, at the races. We had to get him back I Had to ring my other siblings. You galvanize. You just mm. do what has to be done. I don't think there's a right or wrong. So Mm. for some people in situations like this, probably the emotional wave will hit over first Mm -hmm. and there may be those bigness of the feelings. For others, they will go into the practical piece of the function, what do we do to function? That certainly was how our family is. And I think what we know about grief and loss is, you know, how people are beforehand, how they cope beforehand, their styles, the way they are we bring that into that grieving space often and so the answer there kayla in many ways for me around how do you handle that in many ways is around well perhaps how you have handled a lot in your life Mm -hmm. is perhaps around you survived it you put one foot in Mm -hmm. front of the other but another answer is somewhere in the back of your head you begin to prepare Mm -hmm. i remember sitting we stood for most of the time in the kitchen, two two people from Dara's company, from Dara's organization, two colleagues of hers, a, a, a pilot and an engineer, one of whom is a great pal of Dara's and a great, been a great friend to us. They offered, they chose to come to us, an incredibly courageous thing to do. They could have sent anybody, but they offered and they came to, to, to Dara Neymar's door at that time of the morning to tell us and they stayed with us all the time. And so we all stood, we were standing in the kitchen and, and I just remember saying at one stage, as we sat momentarily around the table, I just remember saying, we need to prepare ourselves. And I remember, you know, looking around the room and just heads that had been maybe bowed, just looked up and just caught my eyes at that, that knowing that the words that I was saying did need to be said we mm. prepare ourselves so i think on some level even when you're functioning even you're doing what you're needing to do on some level there's a part of your brain is beginning to consider the possibility of devastation really yeah
0: it's an awful lot for the the mind to even consider and as you said putting one foot in front of the other mm. Yeah, it's um, I think some people, as you said, go into the roles of kind of like galvanizing and getting on organizing things. And you just I I don't know, it's survival, isn't it? It's really just survival.
1: And all's okay. I think what's important to say to people is don't expect yourself to be, you know, doing this or doing that or doing the other. Allow yourself to do what you're able. Mm -hmm. That's it. There's no instruction booklet with these things when you when we're talking about a pandemic that we all found ourselves in, when you're talking about people whose lives are destroyed by war, when you're talking about situations like this with any of us, with our loved ones, there aren't instruction booklets that say when this happens, turn to page eight. There are those of us in life who have written about our own experiences in those situations, in certain situations, and that can be of help to others down the line, but you all still have to live your situation yourself. And no one's ever written an instruction booklet for that. So allow yourself whatever you feel is okay. No judgment, no expectation. Just acceptance. This is how I feel now. Our lives are turned upside down. You may have heard the description I've talked about before, where it feels to me that on that morning when we heard that the heli was down, it's as if I was on a railway tracks in a car. The car is locked. My family's in the car. We cannot get out of the car. There's no key. We can't move the car and there's a train coming down the track. Mm -hmm. So you can see this train out the window of the car, but you can't get away from it. You pretty much know it's going to hit. And then about six hours after that initial phone call that woke us, we then had two more men from Dara's company arrive to the house and they stood in her kitchen that we had sat with her in you know, so many times over the years. And I remember them standing there and they told us that the body that had been recovered from the water was Darius, and that's at the moment when the train hits and you it's like your whole life is just. Catapulted up into the air and it falls down on the ground and some pieces are missing and some people, pieces are shattered and some pieces are fragmented and some pieces are still there. But that's your life. And so it's whatever your situation in life, if you're listening to this podcast, you're listening to it for a reason. It's 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 resonated with you, the idea of loss or grief or surviving both. And that's actually another reason why I wrote the book was it's important you know to know that one truth about loss and grief is that it's one of the or I'm actually going to say for me, it's the most difficult thing I've ever experienced in my life. Another truth about it is it's survivable. And so it's allowing yourself, whatever happens in in your time, in your situation in life, to lean into those feelings, to feel them. You won't realize then that you can survive it, but just go with it, whatever you feel, and no expectations or judgment. I think that's really important.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah. I think you've hit on huge things there that I think
2: will be really, really helpful for a lot of people. I know even I'm finding it helpful. I've been through loss and grief a few times, but even still having these conversations are helpful. So one of the things that I loved that you just touched on was different people while in the same situation react entirely differently and how we need to allow space for that as well. You touched on, you come from a large family. So do I. And I remember when we went through a loss, we were all amazed at how differently everybody like I would be a person who turns away. I need to just be by myself for a few minutes. I'll come back. Don't worry. And then we'll get everything sorted, but just, you know, and then other people are very much need the comfort of being around siblings. So I love that you've touched on that. And I suppose to bring it back to what you said a while ago, because it's it's stayed in my mind since you were on today FM when you came back after seven weeks And you said it was quite a public mourning because everybody, I think, mourned um, for the loss of the people who save our lives when we're in trouble. But I wonder, was there then, do you feel there was a small bit of disenfranchised grief for you in that, that you maybe had to perform to a certain way for the public, but then your own grief was your own with your family
1: and and whoever, like, was there an element of disenfranchisement there or... No, I feel that what I have done and do is I grieve in private. I speak about my grief in public. They're very different things. Yeah. So, so I, for me, words are a thing, you know, I'd mentioned earlier picking English as one of my subjects at college and I just, you know, books I love. Now, interestingly, grief has impacted my capacity to read. I just, there were times where I, couldn't read at all. And now even now I find I'm really slow. We've just had the fifth anniversary of of the Dara's death. And we, we had just the sort of admin of grief around the investigation and the crash that all wrapped up just in November. And all of that took an immense toll. And I found since November, since March, just gone, I just I pick up a lovely book and I I'm working through a couple of books at the minute, one after the other, but I'm really slow on it. So so the reading thing um, is important to me, Though important to note that it's different when you grieve, but the words thing are important and I find that I understand I work through my emotional world using my words and when I find the words that fit how I feel, And that allows me name how I feel and therefore understand how I feel and accept how I feel. That helps me. So I share that part of it, but, but the struggle with it is private. It might be me and maybe me on my own or me with my siblings or me sharing things with my friends But it. So it's more the end point, I suppose, really, or the learnings and stuff along the way. So I can see why you asked the question. It doesn't feel, in any way like that, it feels mm-hmm. in private, speak in public. And I never felt any pressure around that. I felt OK with that. Mm, that makes complete
2: sense. Katrina, I know you're mad to jump in there um, with something. But one thing I did want to ask
1: is. <laughs> you're Katrina, mad to jump in there, but I'm not going to let you. Then, no, so. not going to let you. You just That's need Kayla. to
2: wait because it's going to fly out of my head. Books. You, you love books. You love books. I love books. The year of magical thinking. Joan Didion, have you
1: gone as far as there or no? I have not yet read a grief book. Okay. I I, so so when on the day that Dara died, I took out my I took my out my phone when we were driving to we were being driven to Mayo to to bring Dara home and driven across the country. And I remember sitting in the front seat of the car. Um, you know, this man driving, and my siblings and, and and Dara's little son in the back. And I just took out my phone and I wrote on the note section, I wrote, vicious, violent, and visceral. And they were the words that felt like what this day was. When hearing that Dara had died. That my physical response was it was vicious, it was violent, it was visceral. It was that's the description. So I they were the first three words. They ended up in the book, but they were the first three words that I wrote to really. Un, I just needed to capture and understand what I was living at the time. So I wrote those, and I, I I kept starting every couple of days. I would just write down some words. I just needed to empty my head and get these words out. But then as things went on and time went on, grief just robs you of so many cognitive functions. And I was able to do what I needed to do to keep up with my psychology work and my psychology reading. There was nothing else. Grief is like an app on your phone that drains the battery. There was nothing else. It was survival. And so then it became a point when I'd been approached to write the book and I began to write the book. And I didn't want this book to be influenced by anybody else so I didn't read anything then and then we hit I finished the book just before the pandemic so sort of winter of 2019 and then the pandemic hit and actually between that and sort of other factors factors around the crash investigation the different hearings and things that went on with related to the admin of grief That sort of brought back in those hundred feet high waves of grief. If I was to write that book now, having lived through those huge, big pieces of an investigation, inquest, all those massive bits around grief that are huge for so many people, it might be in my instance, it was an investigation and inquest and all that for some people it might be selling a house it might be probate it might be a will in divorce it's the whole separation agreement it's the divorce it's you know even in infertility there's so much form filling and all sorts of stuff that you have to do around it the admin of grief can intensify the feelings of grief Mm. so what's happened then in the last two years is i've been surviving you know with my sister's Homeschooling Dara's child, juggling work, you know, supporting our parents, all of those other things, surviving that. And at the same time, quietly, we weren't allowed to talk about it. It was all, you know, obviously quiet and confidential, going through that huge admin of grief. So, for that reason, in the last year or two, I have not read any books on grief. And so for me, it seems ridiculous to think, but it's five years since Dara has died and I haven't yet, for what are good reasons, but I haven't yet read any books. Will I get to those things? Yeah, I will. Do I think it's going to be immediate? No, I don't. I, I, I'm empty at the moment. I feel like I've lurched from sort of Five percent to ten percent to fifteen percent battery back down to five percent up to ten percent back down to five percent. So will I? Do I think I'll read any of those soon? No, but in time, do I want to? One hundred percent, I really do. I'd love to. Yeah, Yeah. I totally
2: understand that. It's almost like having to gatekeep your energy. Um, I love that.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's totally understandable. Mm -hmm. Katrina, sorry, I've I've put you okay, Kayla. I'm used to being just a shadow, really. You know, um. The admin of, of grief, I suppose, was something you've you've just you've chatted about quite a bit. And I you know it's something we we talk to a lot of people through the various roles we do and stuff like that. And it's another thing that comes up for people who have lost people by suicide. There's inquests, there's all these different things. And we went on we did postvention training now and you know they speak about supporting people in the aftermath because it's with those bits like the the admin that people it's so re traumatizing Because like, it brings it brings so much back up. And I think as well it just shoves Kubler-Ross out the window with the five stages of grief like because there's no five stages of grief because as soon as you think something's passed there's a wave and it's just to kind of
1: say that I suppose and to highlight that that there there is no five stages. And she didn't mean it that way anyway. Mm. Her work yeah. was with those who are facing their own death who are terminally ill. She didn't mean it in a linear way. It sort of got hijacked by you know, so I think that's important to say absolutely Mm -hmm. grief, not linear in this one. But certainly the admin of grief can bring you right back, right back, right back into those early days. Really Mm -hmm. and I would say to anybody, if your loved one has died in circumstances which mean that there is any sort of admin like what we have spoken about a few moments ago or any others that we haven't mentioned here one of the keys is to carve out where you can carve out some space for yourself to allow yourself to feel the feelings of those that come with that admin because it for starters i think it can it's almost like emotionally you navigate your way through learning to live with the loss of your loved one or the loss of your dream or the loss of the life you had whatever your loss is but it's like the admin piece runs at a different pace so 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 just to talk about our own situation I suppose having to and it was necessary and I wholly support it but having to navigate some of the details around the crash and Dara's death. I'll just only talk about, obviously, my own sister and my own family having to navigate that up to five years after she had died. It's horrific. That's there there is no other word for it it was and it, and and I don't use the word I think the word trauma is used a lot, and it's often overused, and I don't use it lightly, but some of the things were traumatizing, and I find myself in that last year, just going through the bits and pieces, attending every day, hearing the details I had to hear. I, I went back to having nightmares, which I hadn't had since 2017, since the year that Jared died. and But as a psychologist, I understand that that's normal because my system is trying to come to terms with some of the things that I'm hearing, you know, and, and, and one nightmare continues. It comes and goes. I've sort of gotten used to it now. um, But my... My my mom and I used to in our separate houses because it was locked down at some of these times Um, she would watch the hearings sort of online and in her place and I would online in mine. And I remember after one of the, the days, it was so difficult that. I had a nightmare that night that my mom and I were in a car, we were on a road in the dark, a twisty road at night. The car went off the road into the water and we're trapped in this car. Now I know as a psychologist what that is. I know that's my system hearing different details and putting it all together and just being so traumatized by it that this is what happens. So I suppose it's understanding that that although wholly necessary, and we must do these admin pieces of grief. We all must do them, whether it's the probate or the, whatever it is that some of those things emotionally can hurt us at the time. We do survive that hurt and we will go on from it. But I think if I knew then what I know now, I would have been prepared for that. I was wholly unsuspecting of that because I felt in the year or so before getting entrenched in some of that big admin around the crash, um, I felt I'd come to a place where emotionally I had accepted Dara's death and I understood in my heart that she's never coming back and that I'm I'm never gonna sit beside her, hug her, have a cup of tea with her, you know, hear her laugh. You under you get to a place where you understand those things. You're desperately sad about them, but you understand them. And so if I knew then, however, that the admin of grief would kick all that up again like a rock into a pond and would shake it all up i think that would have been helpful and so if i was to write more about grief or if i were to add chapters to a book or something i definitely would would want to warn people about that and say Mm. if you can create a space to mind yourself on that do because you often need to
0: Mm. that's it and And even for others so rambles. no jeepers come here i love your rambles they were amazing don't ever change them yeah um even for people you know they often wonder how can i support someone how can i do it is to be aware of it that it will kick stuff back up for a person and and i think even the fact that like, you speak about grief so normally in your grief and so beautifully i just think i feel this will normalize it for a lot of people because you know sometimes we're afraid to talk about our experiences and what that can be like and you know i'm a bit weird why am i holding on to these things so many years later and you know so i really hope
1: that's that's Really, really is kind of, I suppose, validating for people. Uh, and that would tie in with what Kayla said about the differences. If you think yes. of a family, if, if you have a family of siblings and maybe the last parent has died and the family home or the farm or whatever it is needs to be dealt with, well, we have a group of people here who are, you know, different ages different stages in life, different personalities, different relationships with the parents, different relationships with one another, all of those things and grieving differently as is normal. And then this huge admin piece comes along about the farm and what are we going to do? And was there a will and there wasn't a will and all this kind of stuff. So it's really understanding for people that if you're struggling emotionally, while you're struggling with some of this admin, you're not not coping you're not going backwards you're not weak you're not vulnerable you're not doing it wrong because the world wants us to hurry on up with your grief now and Mm -hmm. stop talking about that stuff and come back in here and just you know make things nice and neat again there's a touch of that with the world but I'm saying to you if you're going through any of that big stuff around the will and the farm and and all that stuff Allow it, allow yourself to feel what you feel. And if you are supporting somebody who's going through that to say to them, it's okay. there'll be a day when this will be resolved. It might not be how you like it, but it will be resolved and you'll have a space to breathe again. In the meantime, I'm going to be your friend and I'm going to be here with you whatever way I can do it. Those things I think are helpful to know for people. That's yeah. it, and like,
0: I loved as well. Sorry, Kelly, i cut across no, you this time <laughs> <laughs> The two of us are just fighting each other off to talk to you. Um, but I think as well that, you know, that as you did say rightly as well in your book, people have, in Ireland, we don't tend to talk too much about that, right? And in your book, I thought it was, it was actually, and I won't lie, I kind of laughed a little bit, So I'm so sorry, I shouldn't have. But you know the way some people, they came up to you and said the most ridiculous things. Like, you know, when you were grieving, I can't even think of some of them now, but basically the consensus of, oh, sure, move on now, get over kind of a thing. And I was kind is this even real?
1: People do that. And I think they do that more commonly than is spoken about, which is the reason why I talked about it. So I definitely have people said to me things like, um, I thought you would have, air quotes, have gotten over your sister's death. I thought you would have moved on. Um, And somebody even said to me at one point, you know, come on now, that's enough, get on with it type of thing so so number one mind your own business (laughs) I was laughing going are they for real like yeah yeah Yeah. so so and and I want to be clear on this one too let me just be really clear I believe in people I believe in the goodness of people most people are good there's muppets out there of course there are there's people who are bad-minded out there of course there are my thing on that one is identify who they are make sure they're not in your space Keep yeah. going with the nice people around you. That's that's my sort of philosophy on it. So most people who will say a comment like that, they're not coming in with a bad intent. It's just they maybe don't understand. And that's fine. That's fine. We need to see it like that. There's no point in holding the grudges space. But what's important to know is that, you know, really, if you are going through that admin piece, it intensifies and prolongs the feelings of loss and grief. And so, you know, there does need to be an allowance for that with people and an allowance that we all go at our own pace anyway, admin or no admin. So for the world to just leave you be, allow you to do that, support you in that, I think, again, these are important conversations to have, because a lot of it's about awareness and people may be saying, I didn't realize I thought, well, you know, her sister died five years ago or her mom died 10 years ago or whatever it is you know so I thought she would have been in air quotes grand by now Mm. but they don't know all the stuff that's you've been she's been dealing with in the meantime around her mom's death or around the farm or around whatever we need to allow for this stuff it's part of grieving yeah Mm. yeah
2: I think you're dead right and What I love about what you're saying is how important the conversations are around the admin of grief. And I don't want to go too much backwards, but the thing about it is, is that especially in Ireland, I think lots of things are kept and done in secret. So we do a lot of our grieving in secret and that's okay. If that's your choice, that's your choice. That's fine. But the knock on effect of that is that we only learn things for the first time when we're going through them. Mm -hmm. And then as you said, so you have this, this experience of losing someone that you love. And while trying to survive that, and like you said, put one foot in front of the other, something else can happen in the meantime, in the administration part that can completely come from the back of you and just clip you around the head and just, and I think a lot of people don't realize that right down to the basics in Ireland at the moment, if your loved one is going through, and I'll talk about my own experience and nobody else's, cancer treatment and passes away. There's no system that brings all the information of that patient together You know, so while while you were receiving cancer treatments, maybe radiation, there's there's nothing that brings and unifies the information together in the oncology unit or whatever else. So what we found was that when I was looking after my granddad in his final weeks and months and days, he passed away and I'll never forget it. We were all at the house, obviously, and planning the funeral and everything else. And the phone rang and I answered the house phone and it was a lovely nurse. This was none of her fault. And she said, hi, I'm just wondering if Michael is coming for his radiation appointment this afternoon. Oh, and I was like, oh, this is going to be my first time seeing." actually Michael passed away, you know, so, and I think if I had expected it, maybe it would have been a little bit. I could have prepared myself like you spoke about. Maybe we need to prepare ourselves, but you can't prepare for something that you don't know is coming. Exactly. So I think it's I love how you're talking about the administration of grief because nobody does.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think there are wonderful people in this space in Ireland. So, you know, we look at... The Irish Hospice Foundation, we look at there's a myriad there of you know, professionals who are great in this space. There are different organizations. There are lots of people who are bereaved, who have set up organizations in support of others. So these conversations are coming on board, coming on board, coming on board. We need to keep having them because Kayla, you've just hit on something really important there, which is that the bit around that we don't we don't find out about this until we need it. Mm -hmm. And if you think about, you know, like I said, so so I'm a guardian with my two sisters to to Dara's young son. We raise him on her behalf. So so I'm not a a mother. um, I'm not his mother. I'm not a mother, but I am in that sort of parenting space in, in one way. But what I think of this whole thing is There's a conspiracy in one way, and I mean that in the in the gentlest terms, not not in (laughs) the way that 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 word has been used in recent times in that, you know, you can love your baby, but not necessarily love motherhood. But but do mothers really say that or do fathers necessarily say that? Some do. Some are great and, and put their head above the parapet. But most people don't because it just is. It feels not right. It feels unsavory. It feels disloyal. It feels wrong. So people do that bit that you mentioned, Kayla, where it's just we struggle through those early pieces of parenthood and navigating this in our life quietly ourselves and the world sees the outside sort of view of it. That's it in the parenthood space. It's the same, I think, in the grieving space. It's the same in so many of these other spaces. So people only get to that place themselves when they're parents or when they're grievers or whatever. And they're going, why did nobody tell me this? The answer to nobody tells you it is because all of this stuff is hard to talk about, whether it's. Whether it's I struggle being a mother, you know, I love this baby, but I'm not sure that I love motherhood, whether it's that or whether it's the I feel like I'm back in the early days of grief because we're going through this thing around the farmer, whatever it is, mm-hmm. you know, the, or the secondary losses with grief. That's another thing people don't really talk about is the secondary losses. And I think often the reason why these conversations don't happen is because, it just feels vulnerable when you talk about some of these real feelings. And we we can feel that we've put ourselves out there and it feels a bit scary. Um so I, I think you've hit on something really important there. Um, and that's why I think something like this conversation is really good, because it's it will resonate with people who are living through some of this. Mm. And when you say secondary losses, neve, what do you mean there? So if I think of my My own situation. So, um, when Dara died, I, as I said, with my siblings, my two sisters, became a guardian to her, to her son, and and we raised him. He lives with with one of my sisters, and but we were the three of us very involved, and we raised him. So there's losses in there around. We three as siblings are co-parents first. We we If Dara had survived, if Dara hadn't died and had gone on to live her life and to raise her child, we would have been free to live our lives mm. on the path that we had chosen for ourselves. I'm 53 coming on, 54 in the summer. I would be 67 when he is 21. That's a couple of decades of my life where... The thing that is most important and that drives the decisions around everything that we three do is this young child. Mm -hmm. There's losses in there. There's there's losses around, as I said, the paths in our life, but this losses around. We're very close. We're tight, you know, and we and I have to say. It was a brave thing for Dara to do to put three people as guardian to her child, but she knew the right people. There, you know, mm-hmm. we navigate our way through everything with it, and and we are intact. But but as I said, we're co-parents before we're sisters. So that whole just being sisters thing is in some ways lost to us. Though so we we work at it, we we're okay. Um. Mm-hmm. So it's those kind of losses. It's things like so around the time that Dara died, um, my my marriage had been in, in trouble. Um, and, and I write with this, I say there's no victim or villain. I don't give any details because mm. it's nobody's business. Um, he's a good man. I, I we would we hug each other if we see each other now. But it's still desperately sad. And there's something so poignant there there is how she introduced us. And then when her life ended, our marriage ended and stuff. It It's been desperately hard. We've navigated, I think, quite well really well and i think it's lovely to think that as a couple who were together for 21 years you can sit and have a coffee and wish each other well you know a having split so so but for some people in a divorce situation or indeed, even for me in a divorce situation, there are losses. So so there will be people, for instance, who are divorced or a relationship ends and they will have people who were friends in their life who now Mm. are not in their life. True. Do you know there are there are places they would go. There are habits they had. There are parts of their life that now aren't. Mm -hmm. because that initial loss of the divorce and in the same when you're bereaved there are parts of your life that now aren't because of that initial loss which is the death I mean I've 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 posted a couple of times about this sometimes I just get this overwhelming sort of wave comes over me and I just think I miss the life we had when my family was whole Mm -hmm. so the secondary losses are that you're watching the others who you love yeah You're dealing with your grief, but you know that they're dealing with their grief. And that's a loss because they aren't the same person or people that they were before. Do you see what I mean? That's what I mean by the second. Yeah, Yeah,
0: Jesus, it's so complex. It
2: is. There's lots of different kind of nuanced parts of it. And I I think, isn't it the loss of what was meant to be and the loss of what could have been? Yes. Mm. Um, And the loss of future opportunity. And that opportunity might be big. It might be small. The opportunity to sit down with your sister and have a cup of tea. Like that's that seems so small, but for some people who are grieving, that is so huge. And it's obviously, future robbed.
1: Yeah, future absolutely. Robbed. That's, that's 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 exactly. You've hit the nail on the head. It's a, it's a future robbed. It's a plan. It's something you were entitled to have. Although I hate that word, I nearly come out in a rash when I say that word. <laughs> you know, we're entitled to nothing. The world owes us nothing really does you know but but so i i might scrub that word out and say entitled there is a path a life that you were allowed to have you know it was understandable that you thought you would have and you're robbed in this space because you don't get to have that anymore and that's a loss or even if we take the infertility piece so if you find yourself in a position as i have done where You are unable to conceive and you go through that whole fertility journey. There are losses around the life we often if you took a bunch of five year olds or six year olds in school and you say to them, you know, put a camera in their face and a microphone, what do you want to do when you grow up or whatever? And they'll say, you know, Batman or whatever. They'll say, I don't TikTok stars now or whatever they're going to (laughs) say. you with them in there will say, I want to be a mommy mm. or, you know, I want to have kids or it comes up a lot. And so there's a loss there around being part of that community, part of that whole life that you thought that you would have. And I think it's understanding mm. that, you know, when we meet people, when we go into a grocery store, when we are in an office place, when we were anywhere in life, there's often people dealing with what I call like those infertility piece secret losses that nobody knows about. But there's secondary losses with all of those two in that they're just not part of this world that most of the world is part of. If that That's makes it.
0: Any I sense. I think those secret losses, I think, um, and especially for any professionals, I think working with people, especially in a confidential capacity and stuff like that, I often talk about that because professionals can you know people can die that they've been working with through different circumstances and you can't really let on you know the person so you're like you just have to hit mute silence you know and you just get on with it like so it's, it it hits every walk of life doesn't it like nobody is immune or I don't know and I think there's the loss of yourself in it a little bit too maybe oh um,
1: my gosh that is so important what you have just said so important yeah. Katrina. So important mm. because one of the key, and if I were to put chapters onto the end of my book, one of the key things in this, and I kind of touched on it in bits and pieces in there, but I, I feel so much bigger now is I think in some of our losses in life, we additionally can lose ourselves. Mm. And mm. and it's allowing the space and the time for that, and not judging that, but 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 saying it's what it's understandable. Why wouldn't I lose myself in whatever way it is? For some people, it will be a physical loss of self. For others, it will be a social or emotional loss of self, Um, a loss of maybe some things they like doing, whatever. But it's allowing that and saying you're not again to repeat what I said earlier. You're not not coping. You're not doing it wrong. You're not going backwards. This is grief and you're okay. You can find yourself again, but, it, but it's a loss that can take time. So I think you, mm. you again, have hit on something really key there. Mm. And I think
2: mm. e- even when you do find that self again, it's, it's, it's the same self, but it's a different self, you know, and I think it comes back to what you said at the beginning. There is life before the loss and there is life after the loss. And they're they're two different things. They're the same person, but they're two different things. And it's it's how you learn to live alongside your loss. You, You never learn to live life to the full or you just focus on your life now or there's nothing you can do about it. You need to move on. That doesn't happen. Let's just be real. It never happens. It never will. And I think when we talk with people who maybe have lost a love unto suicide, there's lots of time spent on the meaning making part. So how do I now, in the worst thing that has ever happened, and we're always taught, don't catastrophize, don't think the worst is going to happen. For some people, the worst has happened. So telling them not to jump to the worst case scenario is useless because it's happened. So it it becomes a lot about meaning-making. And have you found that, or what do you think about meaning-making, or how important is it for you?
1: I think it's, I think it's everything, because I think death makes us, question every facet of life you know whether your person has died you know and I and I, I again I nearly come out in a rash when I hear somebody saying you know oh so-and-so's granddad died and I'm sure he was a great age so what oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he is loved he is missed he you know I it's probably one thing that I probably got wrong in the book I mentioned at one stage something I think and I was writing it from a place of Intense grief myself. I mentioned something about the difference maybe between a life a death that is sudden, where shock is involved, and a death that's expected. But now I understand and I know somebody can have a terminal illness and you can still feel shock when they die. Yeah. I I I missed that. I really didn't understand that at the time. But however your loved one has died, however they have died, you know. It, there's that thing of life is never the same since. And we can look at life and think, but what is the point? How can I if I take my situation? How can I live with this girl and we live with this girl and we live within this family, we we, you know, we try to do our best, you know, we're living our lives and you're doing your best and then just one day she's gone. Like mother of God, she's gone. There's no warning. There's no goodbyes. There's just ripping out. Ripping out of someone of your life. Ripping out. And there's a nothingness. And that's forever. Well, by God, that makes you question everything. That just... That makes you just look at what actually is the point of this whole thing? What's the point of liking somebody? What's the point of loving somebody? What's the point of all this? Because actually what I know now is that there comes a day when we're going to be ripped apart, what's the point? So I think you go through and I think all that's natural to go through all of that. And it's not that the meaning piece takes away that but I think what it does is it comes in and helps. Mm. So finding meaning in life, when the meaning of life has been entirely questioned for us by the loss of loved one or the loss of hope or whatever it is, I think is really important for us because it it helps us carry on and we do need to carry on. We do need to continue to live. We do need, you have to be very brave to grieve. You know so so for me if you think of some people you know you look at say fiona toomey whose daughter millie died by suicide at age 11 she set up hug which is a bereavement um support peer to peer support group for those who are bereaved by suicide there's huge meaning in that space that she has done um and i think you know if you take something like that and you look across the board at people who are bereaved or at people who have suffered a loss in other ways in life you'll often see them do something which helps somebody else and what that's doing is in addition it is helping them it's bringing yeah. to their life where there has been a gaping space for meaning does that makes complete sense up? nail total on the sense. head yeah
0: total sense and you know what i think I will be wrapping it up now in a sec, but just to say like you've been so like one of the things you say as well in the book is, you know, how you've learned to just tell people what you think, you know, like if you love them, tell me you love them. Say it out. And I'm a firm believer in that. And sometimes Kayla's like, well, oh, geez, Katrina, really, do you have to say things out to someone? And I'm like, well, they need to know, like, you know, I remember going one day.
1: Yes, I did. What she's really saying to you, Kayla, is yes, I did. I said it. So that means I did have to say it. <laughs> Exactly. Oh absolutely look I've given
2: up that fight now I just know put my fingers in my ears and smile at the sky and just move on
0: just <laughs> generally laughs at me but yeah, you know do, people yeah. in the shop I remember telling a lady one day you know because they did all the people in college used to be like she's so nice above in the shop and she's always so chatty to me and I remember telling her one day you know you we really appreciate you and people are always saying they love coming to shop because you're here and in you know and that, first of all they just glow but yeah. second of all it kills me because I remember um, someone died local enough there a couple of years Mm. back and I never knew they were into sport or anything about them because it was an unusual enough sport and it was after they died I heard it and I remember thinking why like people wait sometimes until people are dead to actually would you call it a living eulogy we should have or I don't know I think we should promote the different aspects of individuals while they're alive and celebrate them
1: yeah and i think the part about that is actually odd as it may seem counterintuitive as it may seem that by talking about death and loss and grief we can help people find ways to live a better Mm. life and i don't mean better as in you know bigger richer any of that Mm. silly stuff i mean richer as in in yourself more aligned with yourself life and I think for so for me, when you talk about meaning, when I have people who message me as they do on a, on a weekly basis, I get messages from people to say, I didn't think your story would resonate with me because your loss is different to mine. But I see so much of me when I read your words and I know now that I can continue. I know now that I will find purpose. I will find a piece of joy in life and whatever. That brings immense meaning to me, immense meaning to me, which helps me. So I think all those pieces are are really important. Or when I talk about Dara, you know, she she smashed through glass ceilings. She she inspires little girls who will say and little boys who will say, I can do something. You know, there was no one in our family in aviation. She had no history there. She and she came from nowhere and she became one of the most respected and well-regarded pilots and search and rescue pilots that there is. She was known the world over for this. And so when I speak about that, there's meaning there because little ones are saying, maybe I can too. You know, and I think it's all of these pieces can help us in our grief. And anything like this is useful for people. So. Thank you for inviting me on here to have this discussion, because I think in doing so, we will help people. And I'm I'm really glad to do that. Yeah,
2: I have to agree with Katrina the way you've spoken here today. And like you said, there is something so vulnerable in sharing your grief, especially because you've already shared it so publicly um, a few times. So thank you for for being here, for being so honest. And always you speak about things in such a beautiful way. That I, I think it kind of takes me aback. Anyway, I can't speak for Katrina, but I, I'm sitting here thinking now, and I will be thinking of all of the lovely things that you've said throughout the whole day. But what I want to say is that if people want to learn more about Neve Niamh and Neve's work, you can do so on nevefitzpatrickpsychology.ie, and if you want to talk to Neve on Twitter, Neve is a big, big Twitter head, and she's she's always sharing very helpful stuff there. So you can look up at nfitzpsychology on Twitter. And um, Katrina.
0: Yeah, I'm going to pop all those into the show notes as well. Um So again, look, it's just to thank you, Niamh. And thanks for trusting us to do this and for, you know, trusting the audience, I suppose, and everything else that goes with it. Have you anything else you'd like to say before we
1: wrap up, Nev? Well, just I suppose the reason there that I trusted you, I've obviously done, I've done training with you both around suicide response. I've seen both of your work. I see what you do. I love the. I love the, the 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 gentleness, but also the straightforwardness with which you discuss difficult topics, and and it felt to me like a good space to have another conversation around grief. And I mentioned before we began recording that I just came into this flat. I found the fifth anniversary quite tough, and the end of all the admin quite tough, and all of that. But it at the same time felt an important space to come into to to just continue some of those things that we've talked about here, the secondary losses, the admin of grief. We need to keep getting that information out to people and helping people understand we can survive this. So if people take that from this, you can survive it. Even if you can't see that survival piece now, then I think we're doing some good work with this and I'm delighted to be part of it.
2: Absolutely. And I suppose naturally enough, the book that I will recommend on Mental Health Hour this week is Neil Fitzpatrick's book, Tell Me the Truth About Loss. It'll be added to our book list on mentalhealthhour.ie. If you want to follow us, you can do so on Twitter at mentalhealth underscore HR. And we're also on Instagram or on LinkedIn. Come and have the chats with us. We'd only love to have you around.
0: Talk to you later. Bye.